We want to say thank you for listening. So our sponsors have given some great deals in this episode. Check these out. This episode of the Real Rescue Podcast is brought to you by Breeze Eastern, the world's only dedicated helicopter hoist and winch provider. Access. Because when lives are at stake and conditions are challenging, clear communication is of the utmost importance. And SR3 Rescue Concepts, because you don't know what you don't know. Breeze Eastern. They dedicate themselves to our helicopter rescue world. Since the very first helicopter rescue in November of 1945, Breeze Eastern has designed and manufactured superior rescue hoist solutions. While much of the technology and the unique mission requirements have changed over the past 75 years, their commitment to the rescuers, the operators, and those being rescued has not. Contact them today by visiting them at breeze-eastern.com. The Access PNG Wireless ICS System can bring cutting-edge wireless intercommunication system technology to any aircraft. The PNG system can be fully integrated into an existing ICS system or can be carried on and off as a mobile base station. They can go anywhere, at any time, on any aircraft. Plus, with the strongest and most robust waterproof handheld on the market, this system can take a hit and keep working. Their wireless intercom systems are designed to enhance situational awareness through improved communication capability. This system brings superior noise-canceling technology to eliminate rotor wash and engine noise from your ICS. The Access PNG wireless system is currently deployed in more than 1,800 public safety, air ambulance, and search and rescue aircraft worldwide. I have personally used the Access system in four different countries and on five different airframes. It is awesome. If you want more information, contact them today at access.com. That's A-X-N-E-S.com. You just make sure you tell them Quinny sent me. And SR3 Rescue Concepts is a training company that can help with your helicopter training, a standardization and safety check, or maybe just an audit or an FAA refresher. They are here to bring your agency up to date with the most current techniques, rules, regulations, and equipment. The training staff is awesome. With a certified flight instructor pilots, experienced crew members, which I am happy to say that I am one of them, they offer training in rescue, medical, tactical, firefighting, ground operations, and night vision goggle use. SR3 has also partnered with Petzl to assist with personal protective equipment and the highly specific Lazard. SR3 also goes beyond the helicopter world as they provide high angle rescue training and tactical medicine training. Contact them today at sr3rescueconcepts.com or over on Instagram at sr3 underscore rescue. Up next, we've got another first coming to us. Not just any first, but a doctor. And not just any doctor, but a medical director. You know the guy that signs the protocol to make sure we're all doing what we're supposed to be doing? Yeah, he's coming on. He's coming on to give some of his stories, his advice, and what he's had hands-on with. It's amazing. So please welcome our next guest, Dr. Chris Hewitt. My name is Jason Quinn. 
I am United States Coast Guard Rescue Swimmer number 500. These are my rescues and rescues from those of us that put our lives on the line every day so others may live. This is The Real Rescue Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Real Rescue Podcast. Today, I've got with me Mr. Uh, no, even better, Dr. Chris Hewitt, emergency medical, pre-hospital medicine, straight up badass. What's up, Chris? How are you? Good, Jason. How you doing? Dude, I'm awesome. Thank you so much for uh, for coming on. I'm actually really looking forward to this conversation because uh, you guys, we've been back and forth a little bit with a couple things, and and now I get to finally hear everything throughout the entirety so i'm excited so yeah me too. <laughs> but, uh, awesome well i'll tell you what man if you don't mind start us off a little bit a little background about like who you are and how you got into emergency medicine more importantly how you became a doctor <laughs> uh you know the the uh the old story like i like taking care of people um I don't know. I just, I, I was always led towards medicine in a way. I was fascinated by the body. I was fascinated by what I could do, um, helping people to figure out how they, how they could feel better, how they could perform better, how they could get better, whatever it was. Um, it was always just something that always interested me. And I was always, I, I was always good at talking to people. And, and I think that's a big piece of what you have to be able to do um, to, to really be good at the clinical practice of medicine. So um, it was something that I, I, I felt like I was just kind of meant for, led to, you know, one of those really cool things um, that, you know, I got lucky um, and, and managed to, to survive college and get grades good enough that got me into med school. Um, nice. So I, you know, I, I think the, the pieces started to connect for me um, as I was pursuing the idea of going to medical school, or uh, actually when I started, when I started looking at colleges and getting ready to go to college, um, you know, I, I was looking at the military and they told me, you know, you could, you can go to med school or you can go to college and you can go to med school and we'll help pay for it. Um, and I, I always thought the military was a cool way to do that. Um, or, you know, just something that I felt in a way, like, you know, something that I wanted to do. So um, those pieces started to connect. Um, and then I, I joined the military in August of 2001. Um, and I, I was actually in uniform uh, for one of the first times on campus um, on, on September 11th, 2001. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. That's yeah. So, uh, kind of a big day. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I was still, I was new to the uniform. I had no idea what anything meant. And then, um, and then I felt like I was really kind of drawn to the idea of, of doing something for that which leads into how I ended up in search and rescue. Uh, so as part of the response, if people don't know, I mean, the story of 9-11 is so big, but as part of the response, uh, there's a guard unit of pararescue jumpers um, and search and rescue on Long Island, just outside of, uh, outside of Manhattan. Um, and uh, as part of that, of the mission to recover people from the rubble, uh, the, the PJs um, who are trained in technical rescue and, and confined space and all that um, went as part of the teams. Uh, the aircraft went as part of the, the evacuation plans. Um, and so they spun up this whole thing and it was just it's so incredible. I mean, like you have people who do that for a regular job and then you have people who do that um, kind of as, as a, 
you know, they're reservists, right? So their their real job, their everyday job, they're cops, they're they're doctors, they're medics on on some other place. They're they're pilots for airlines. They do all this stuff, and then they just hopped in and started doing it, right? So um, I thought that was really cool, and I thought it was a it was something interesting, like a, a group that I really wanted to get to know more about. Um, and that's that kind of led me after doing my uh, after going to medical school in New York, where I was even more so connected to all of that. Um, it led me to to pursue getting into search and rescue and to support that mission. Um, and so uh, my first my first active duty assignment after finishing a one year internship was in Tucson, Arizona, uh, as part of the search and rescue unit there. Um, and so I got to do desert rescue, uh, mountain, high angle, you know, all that cool stuff um, and be the medical director for 60 special operations paramedics um, who were going out and doing all kinds of jobs that I wasn't even allowed to be told about sometimes. So, um, Love it. so some really cool stuff. So, uh, yeah, there's there's the, the story. You know, I wanted to be a doctor and somehow I, I wound up in search and rescue and then I couldn't get out of it. I, you know, <laughs> after Arizona, I went to England, um, did it in England for three years. Um, deployed three times over the course of six years with search and rescue, um, and then did my emergency medicine residency. And then I, I just enjoyed being a medical director so much and I wanted to do it the right way. So I did a fellowship in EMS and disaster medicine so that I could help to really connect all the pieces um, while doing a, a master's in, uh, in, in emergency management and uh, homeland security. So, yeah, because why wouldn't you want an entire full plate and yeah. then add more? Awesome. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I just wow. wanted I wanted to be able to I wanted to be able to support the mission and do it the right way. You know, like the more you know, the better you, the better you are, and the better you can sort support the the guys that I mean, like as a med director, I mean my job my job is at times to do medicine, but at times it's to support medicine, and so I have to know how to do it the best way. And we can get into that later. So. That, that's pretty good so you you went to school to actually like learn this stuff it's just like getting thrown into the blades which you did as well but hey at least you got a little knowledge you know going into it right yeah yep. So i you, learned you, what i didn't know also so that's oh, what yeah. led me there Same. awesome you don't know what you don't know until you exactly. learn it <laughs> <laughs> yeah yep. so you're under the blades like you said yeah yep. so you basically had no life minus school that's no i'm just kidding <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get there at some point. I, I feel like I'll, you know, I'll finally be done with, uh, with school and I can actually start doing the things I want to do, but, um, you know, retirement's a little bit, a little, still a little ways away. So, uh, you know, that's, that's about the time I'll get there. Yeah. Well, you know what? I mean, you started in Arizona, you, you were in New York, you, you bounced over to England for a while. Now you're in the UAE. I mean, you're all yep. over the place. So, you know, I, I think you're doing all right so far. That's, that's good. <laughs> Yeah. all right so you you get through school and did you go into right into an er or and the reason i'm asking this is because I'm, I'm looking for kind of that very first rescue save again you're you're the doctor so you're the guy yeah. i dropped the patients off to you <laughs> yeah uh so i mean if you if if you're looking for my first rescue save i'll get there but so after after medical school, you do an internship. That internship kind of like prepares you. It's like it's like kind of being um, indoctrinated as a doctor, right? Like you're you're kind of going through everything. You're learning you're learning how the hospital works that you've been training in for four years, but you're learning now as the decision maker 
how that works, right? And and I, I think that you know it's it's kind of similar to those those first years as a junior paramedic where you're kind of you like you you you're able to make the decisions that they would train you to do, but you don't have enough experience yet to do it all on your own. So a lot of times it's nice when you have somebody there with you. Um, and, and, you know, it, it, sometimes it doesn't happen. Sometimes it does. Um, but yeah, so I, I did my internship um, in, a, in a kind of a rural hospital where we got to do everything. Um, and so I took care of everybody um, and it was great. Um, and I felt like there were times in that, in that assignment that I had some really important saves, you know, where I picked up on something or where I made a decision for somebody um, or, or where I pushed when uh, everybody else was kind of stepping back and I pushed and I, you know, I helped to make sure the right treatment was done. So, I, I mean, I, I really enjoyed those saves. Um, but the, I'd say if you want my first rescue save story, uh, it, it leads from medical direction, um, you know, it, and, and it's still like, it's still really close to my heart because even though I wasn't the one touching the patient, I was the one who who changed the way that the medic did his procedure, and and that is what saved the patient. So um, after uh, so my first my first assignment in Tucson, I got there and I was like, hey, like let me know how I can help. And they're like, hey, we're going to be running some night scenarios. We're going to you know do some uh, we'll, we'll call it live tissue training, but we're gonna we're gonna learn how to to take care of. Um, uh, combat wounds out in the desert in the at night. We're going to do prolonged care overnight. Um, we're gonna we're gonna have you know we're gonna figure out a way to set up some shelter and and we're gonna run this. Um, and and so we were before I before I start. Let me just say, um, <laughs> okay. okay. So I am. I, yeah, I should I should caveat before we get any further. I am yeah. I am a member of the U.S. military. What I say is my opinion and my opinion only it does not represent the u.s military okay wow so going well back done. To the story. well done yeah yes. all right yeah we just <laughs> checked that box <laughs> Check. i'm all, safe now all the public affairs are going to be so happy now they're going to be like oh yeah. my god all yeah. right. i know i know i'll show up somewhere and they'll be like you didn't say it like no no no. fast forward to whatever is in there um i haven't said anything about the military yet so that's that's good i've got to that point all right so um so first one of my first military exercises where i was really connected to it and I had to say that because um, the way that we did training, the way that the, the uh, let's say the models that we used and things like that were, were to as close as possibly or as close as possible simulate a, a battlefield casualty and the, and the complex scenario challenges that you would go through in a scenario, in a field scenario with real physiology. And, and that's as far as I will take that. Um, so, uh, okay. our scenario was, was kind of a, you know, a, a blast scenario. We had multiple patients. Um, some of those one of those patients had a, a significant facial injury. Um, and, uh, and, and basically we made it too challenging to manage an airway. Um, and so at night in the, you know, in the middle of the desert, uh, I have these guys, young, young medics, very new, you know, get dropped off by a helicopter, dust everywhere, can barely see. Um, and like you said, under the blades, and you've got, you've got these patients that are all kind of already starting to circle the drain and they needed to, they needed to go through stepwise quickly. What we would call what our March assessment, like ABCs, but we start with massive hemorrhage, right? So they get to airway and I'm on, I'm on, uh, or I'm guiding the medic on, on this one, uh, patient, um, and needed to do a crike. Uh, and so he's trying to do a crike at night using green light, you know, dirt everywhere. He's one of his first times ever really like 
busting into his kit, which is the wrong way to do it. Um, but uh, one yeah. of the first times going through, so he drops the scalpel, he loses this, he picks his, th- and, and so like all of this has just taken time. And so finally he starts to cut and I see him like shaking. So I move his arm and I set him down. I put his hand so that he's not lift, like hovering and, you know, doing all the weird cocking motion and yeah. like showing him just how to, how to stabilize himself. So he doesn't have to shake anymore. So then after he does that, he's like cutting and then he's trying to use his hook and do all the other fancy stuff that they teach you in the schoolhouse, but is not the way that it ever is going to happen. So I just took his finger and stuck it in the hole. And I was like, put your finger there and you're never going to lose it, right? Like, you know what that feels like now. So he put his finger there. He could feel, he knew what, he knew what kind of what the cricothyroid membrane and the area between the uh, the, uh, cricothyroid cartilage and thyroid cartilage felt like he could feel those things and he could keep his finger in there. And then he could get the tube in there after he did that. Right. So I I walk him through this. We actually kept the patient alive. We kept him alive for a good amount of the night. Um, We went through a ton more afterwards in our debrief. I asked him to walk me through that procedure again, how he's going to do it. So he walked everybody through the procedure. Uh, so fast forward six months, we deployed to Afghanistan. Um, I'm on I'm on alert. I happened to, at the time, be uh, not flying. So I was, I was 24 on, 24 on. I was either 24 on flying or I was 24 on for rotary alert. So I was either fixed wing uh, critical care transport or I was rotary alert. Um, and so rotary alert also meant that I was in the clinic most of the time. Um, we get a call, of course, uh, they have, they have to do, they have a, you know, a, 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 uh, I can't remember, you know, what country I won't, I actually won't say what country, um, but another country's vehicle had been, um, blown up. They had, they had people inside that they wanted taken out. Um, and so, uh, so they were going to go and do a recovery. Um, they got onto the scene, didn't feel right. Things were kind of a little bit weird. Uh, and there was an explosion. Um, uh, you know, a secondary. Uh, so it, it was a command detonation, um, actually took out a uh, U.S. military uh, explosive ordnance device or EOD guy. Um, and so, you know, one of the guys who goes out and looks for the explosives, so took him out, um, went straight, went straight up from underneath him. Uh, so he got kind of predatored. Um, and so Damn. needed a crank. Yeah. So, so the first medic on realized that he needed a crank. He's struggling with this crike and he's a senior medic. My junior medic shows up, does the exact same thing I did to him, gets the crike. That crike saved the dude. He actually kept that crike all the way back to the U.S. So from from Afghanistan to Germany to the U.S., he kept the same crike because it was in so well. Um, which usually it gets converted because it's it's bad, right? So because he did it right the first time because he knew how to do that at night in the dark under stress after people had just been blown up they're worried about more people shooting at him um and he was able to do that we got that that uh that u.s member back and he was facebook friends with that medic within six months um and he's back to back to regular life he i mean you know the the most incredible like most incredible feeling like i'm getting i'm getting the chills now and it's it's crazy because i didn't do it right? Like I didn't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, but that's the, that's the cool thing that we get to do as med directors, right? Like you get excited. Cause you think, you think about those times that you were out there and you actually did something that saved somebody, man. Yeah. Like I have, I might at times have several hundred medics that might do that on a daily basis. Like it's incredible, right? Like I could oh, set them up for man. that. So Dude, that's sick. Know? And so, yeah. So God, that, I that one, that one definitely that like that one's, that one's close to my heart because I mean, like I, you just don't, you don't have that, that opportunity. And you don't like, you don't see that 
and and as a young medical director at the time, like to have that experience, like I am, there's no going back, right? Like I was in, there was like nobody <laughs> could convince me to do anything else. Like that was what I was going to do forever. So yeah. Wow. Oh, Chris, that is awesome. Oh, I love it. <laughs> You know what? I like there, there's so many avenues we could go out of that. Like what real life training, how, how real do you want the training to be in order to like perform the best you can when it actually happens? And yeah. that's what we talk about all the time. Oh, Chris. Yeah. I mean, if you want, if you want to talk about that, like we did that, I did that to a patient or to uh, in a scenario the other day in the hospital, right? Like, you know, if you, if you just, if you just run a scenario so that people run their checklist, right? Like, you know, yeah. when it comes when it comes to anything, especially trauma, right? Like we're just, we're just running checks. Everything everything's algorithmic. Um, you know, you can you can do your resuscitation and you can get a little fancy with it, but at the end of the day, it's very algorithmic. Um, your treat you have you have a life threat, you have a treatment, you put the two together every time. Like it's everything should just fall into place. But your patient doesn't know that, and they do everything <laughs> they can to screw you up as you're trying to stay in your checklist, right? And so yeah. I like to do that to people. And it's, and it's annoying until you actually have to do it, right? Until you actually are in the, in the position of having to deal with a patient who keeps trying to screw you up while you're trying to save, right? They're trying to die, you're trying to save them, and they just keep screwing it up, right? So, uh, so oh, I like to do that. They're right? trying like, to just, die, like, and you're trying simple, to save right? them. Like, that's you don't awesome. have to do anything crazy. You don't have to like, I, I don't, I don't abide by the like spraying, you know, people are like doing annoying things, but the patients don't lay still. So I just, I, I'll take mannequins and just like roll them on their side, move their arms, you know, pull things off, like sit them up, like think like they don't do, they don't just lay there and say, I'm a trauma, you know, do what you want to me. Right. Like, um, so uh, so that's why we make training. And, and I mean, I learned that early on, right? Like I would, I would smoke my dudes or I wouldn't do it. Um, I mean, I, I, I tried to always be able to keep up with them physically so that if we had to do something, I could keep up with them. And they knew that I was part of it. You know, like I wasn't just sitting there watching them like, mm, I'm just the doc. I don't have to do this. Um, so I would try and keep up with them so that I, I was also like them. I was amped up. Um, and it made it so that the scenario was that more realistic, but I, you know, like we would, we would, we would run them through some crazy workout and then they'd have a med scenario. Right. So now, now you're like, you're physically and mentally in a way already, you know, on like going into your red zone. And then now I'm adding these stressors of, I'm asking you questions while you're supposed to be doing something while, you know, so, um, yeah, it's just, you know, that we, we love running the training so that people learn how to perform under stress. And if you just stress people by like making them feel bad, that's not, that's not effective, no. right? Like you no, need, you I need agree. to, you need to, you need to stress people for performance, right? Like I, my, my goal is to optimize your performance. It's not to break you down and make you question everything you do every time that you're in a bad situation, right? Cause no situation is ever good when we show up. Right. So, right. so I shouldn't make you, yeah, I shouldn't make you feel bad about like, you know, not knowing exactly what to do. I want you, I want you to be able to clear your mind when you're amped up and when everything's going and you're, and you've got adrenaline and you've got like people yelling and you've got somebody like asking you questions. I want you to be able to think, get yourself straight as quickly as possible, make decisions about the patient in front of you. And at the same time, know what needs to happen as far as how you're going to get them out, how you're going to, you know, like all the other things, that's all, that all falls into place afterwards. But you can't do that if I, if, if as a medical director and, and, and as senior medics, so for senior medics out there, this is your job too, right? Like you should not make people feel bad because they don't know what to do. You should, you should 
you should do everything that you can to help to teach them how to make the right decisions. Right. Yeah. And that, that's the, yeah. key. that's the key in all emergency care is making the right decision. So, and, and not to say not even the right decision, making a decision that's heading towards right. That's what I tell people all the time. You just need to head towards right. You do not have really? to, like, this is not a test. It's not A, B, C, D, right? This is a linear, like A is heading towards B. And then once we get past B, we'll go to C, right? Like the, all of those questions could be the right answer. It's just leading along the way, right? So head towards right and just make decisions because otherwise you're just going to be standing there doing nothing and everybody's going to keep yelling at you and the rotors <laughs> are going to keep spinning and pilots are going to get pissed and somebody's going to want to go to lunch and then, you know, all right. So like all those things happen. So, um, so yeah, that's my, that's my take on how to, how to how to get people ready to to make those types of uh, make those types of decisions and how to how to optimally perform in that type of environment and and it was going back to that that case like I mean I didn't I I did not make him feel bad because he dropped his scalpel I did not yell at him because he wasn't he wasn't doing things right I changed I changed his thought process when I grabbed something and I made him just just get his hands and get control of the situation yeah. right rather than. Yeah. Rather than floundering around and thinking, what am I supposed to do with my hands? Just take your hands and put them in a place and, and get yourself moving in a direction, right? Like steady everything and then and then just do something, right? Like start doing something that you know is close to right and just do it. Um, and, and by doing that, it changed, it changed the way that he did it. And then by making him rehash how he did it after the fact, it solidified it to the point that when his life was on the line, his patient's life was on the line, he was able to save that dude and, and I mean, like just crush it. And I mean, he got all the credit for it and it's amazing. Um, you know, he kept trying to pull me into it and I just kept stepping back. Like, man, you were the one with the scalpel. You did it. So. Man. Oh, I love that. I love where you're going with that too. Just make it, make a decision, make a decision. The other part about it. All right. So I'm going to dive into a little more training too, because I love the idea of, of making not things hard in training, but, actually make them hard you know where you where you're and again I, my buddy ashton said it and you know he's a pararescue guy as well is take that tactical pause boom take a minute take a breath look at it yeah mm -hmm. tactical pause and then proceed make a decision it doesn't yeah. have to be there you might not make the right decision but at least you've made a decision and then you can change it as things progress like oh i shouldn't have turned left i should have turned right hey whatever yep. Oh my gosh. So I, I love, I love the tactical love pause. Um, so, so take the tactical pause, right? Like, and, and, and this is something that I actually brought to, to residency. And I, I mean, working in special operations, some of the most incredible human performance people. Um, and, and so this is one of the things that I brought to a lot of the young doctors that I was working with, right? Cause these, I mean, you know, I went through residency six years, six years into my military career. So I had already been doing all these things, right? Like I had been the one out there doing this training. I deployed multiple times. I had like, I, I mean, I, a lot of stuff, right? So I had yeah. grown up a lot. And, and so I'm, but I'm working with a bunch of much smarter than me when it comes to the answers doctors, right? So they, they just came out of med school. They knew all the answers to the test. They, they were, they were spun up on all the newest things. Like they knew how to do, they knew the answer. They didn't know how to get there all the time. Right. So, so taking that tactical pause was, was so helpful. And I, when I talk about the tactical pause, I connect it to a tactical breath, right? So that tactical pause, if when you take it, you just, you mentally, it's, if, if you forcefully exhale, 
and then deep breath in. And then as you slowly exhale, it just feels like you just clear, right? I mean, like if you do it over and over again, that's a real great way to kind of slow yourself down. It's called breathing the box. And you can, you can look that up. Like they, they teach it to snipe. That's the sniper breathing technique. Um, and, and, you know, everybody uses that. But if you just take that forceful exhale, a nice long inhale, and then slowly exhale, that, that forces that that's that tactical pause. It gives you the time to kind of like regroup and you're focusing yourself and you're focusing your breath and in a way focusing your physiology so that you can better perform from that point, right? So it gives you just that second. So when the tactical pause happens, you shouldn't have to think about it, right? You just, you just quickly exhale, forcefully exhale, big breath. And then as you're slowly letting out, this is where it's like, okay, here's my decision, right? Here's where we're going. First thing, this second thing, that, and then, and then now you can, now you've slowed down, right? Like now everything's ready. Now you're ready to perform and now you can kind of move into everything. But if you just like, you can barely breathe and you're taking these short breaths and you're constantly filling up and you're just like, it, everything is just going to stay so amped up. Um, and so, so tactical pause, I love it, but tactical pause with a tactical breath. Oh, we just went up a level. I'm loving it. Ashton, go, yeah. go teach somebody else. <laughs> Chris, that's awesome. Yep. All right, man. Well, let's go into the next one. Cause you, uh, you yes. have an interesting rescue of a couple kids and some stuff and kind of, kind of stuck to you. So I'm interested yep. to hear about that. So this came pretty late in my fellowship. Uh, I was, uh, uh, we, we rotated through several places. I, I did my fellowship in, in Texas. So, so this is, this is uh, EMS and disaster medicine, but um, you know, the, the EMS experience, we rotated through several major cities in the US, including uh, Houston. So we were primarily in San Antonio, massive, you know, two, two million person city, huge fire-based uh, EMS system, great way to learn to be a medical director. Um, and then we, we went down to Houston, 6 million people in the city, just covered in, you know, crazy, crazy uh, medical calls. I mean, just calls, all kinds of emergency calls all day long, everywhere. Um, and so great experience for me there, uh, especially because I was kind of a, a, a standalone medical director. Um, and so we, we were really, we were the, the, the go-to 24 seven. Um, and so uh, the call that I got, this call um, came towards the tail end of, of my, one of my, I think my last month down there actually. Um, and uh, I was, I was at the end of the day. Um, I, I had already kind of like I had settled in. I thought I was going to, you know, I thought I was done. I was, I had I'd taken off like my, my, my polo and my tack pants. I'd thrown them in the wash. Um, and, and this service that we worked with had, uh, um, had a more video body cams and, and we had, we, we had like real time access to dispatch calls. Um, and then, and then as soon as we, so we could see the dispatch, we could see the call as soon as it came in, um, we could see it pop up. And then, and then as the, it got updated and as units got assigned, we could see all of that real time on our on our phones, um, and then once we knew who was assigned, I could actually patch in to their camera on their body and hear them and watch as they're as they're pre briefing on their way to the call, and then once they arrive to the call. Holy yeah, cow! So um, that's like next so, level stuff right there. That's awesome. It's, it's amazing, man. I mean, it it is the uh, the body worn camera thing. I mean, like that's a whole another podcast if you want to go into that. Because I mean, I can <laughs> I, I can tell you all the benefits to it because it's it's incredible. Um, and there's there's a lot of there's a lot of people who who uh, a lot of medics I'll say who are scared of the use and they shouldn't be. Um, but we let's do that another time. Um, okay. So anyway, I get I get I see this uh, this. Um, 
uh, I can't remember how they put it in, but it, you know, like motor vehicle collision, uh, multiple patients. And then it, and then it changes to multiple pediatric patients. So I was like, okay, like not good. Right. When they, yeah, you know, yeah. and usually like it could be bad. It could be, or you don't, you have no idea, right? Like you're just reading the words. So then, um, and then I see multiple ejection and I was like, that's, that's not good. Right. Um, and so, uh, so I, I patch into the, the medics camera and I have them up and I start getting dressed. Um, because I was like, this just has a, you know, I have that feeling. So I throw on luckily another pair of tack pants, my, my tack pants and, 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 and wasn't even like my uniform polo. I just threw on like another shirt that I had. Um, yeah. my, I only had at the time one uniform polo. So, and it's um, in the wash at the moment. So and it's in the wash. Yeah. It's, 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 I didn't come back. I didn't want to show up like <laughs> soaking wet. That would look weird. So, um, so I, I start, I start tracking and I'm, I'm planning on getting in, in my response vehicle and heading out. Um, but I want to see what's happening before I get in the car, because I still have to drive emergency and lights and sirens make people do stupid stuff. So I wanted to make sure that I knew what I was going to and that I wasn't distracted while I was doing it. Um, so, uh, so I waited for a few minutes. I got in my vehicle. I see the medic shows up, show up. Um, I knew her. I had actually just done a critical care course with her. Um, and so she was very motivated. She was really solid. Um, she shows up, she goes and does her triage. She did amazing. She walks through, she sees three patients outside of the vehicle and two in the vehicle. She goes and checks the driver who was, uh, who was already agonal. Um, and so, uh, you know, she kind of presume that to be, uh, you know, a, at that point, um, uh, an expectant, uh, there was a kid in the, in the driver's side vehicle, not should, should not have been there, but a kid in the driver's side vehicle or driver's side seat or passenger side seat, sorry, uh, passenger side seat. Um, she was kind of pinned in, um, just because of the, the impact on the vehicle. Um, and, and, uh, but she was like answering questions appropriately. So she moved to the, the, people laying in the in the street or the kids laying in the street she had some some uh fire that her responded so she put took a firefighter to each one of them did a quick assessment gets through and says just like hey keep an eye on them tell me if anything changes she gets through all three of them all three of them don't look good to them with bad head injuries one of them who's kind of responding a little bit more um and then and then she somebody starts yelling he's not breathing so she goes back over, takes a gives, gives a quick look, no like no breathing, doesn't do pulse check or any of that silly stuff, no breathing, and she's like, I mean, it's a kid, just start doing CPR. So chest compression started by by the firefighter on that one, and then she hears it from another one. So she oh goes back to that kid, God. quick assessment, says start start doing CPR. So uh, we they had already because they knew that there were that many patients, they had dispatched I think at least four units. Um, we had fire on the way, and because of the location, we were in North Houston. Our trauma centers all the way on South Houston, um, or the South side of Houston, which is a massive city. Um, you, right. you generally have to fly pediatric trauma, um, and so they were already starting to to work on getting air, um, and they basically had already committed to saying like we're going to need at least one, if not more. Um, and then I got in the vehicle unfortunately with the mindset that I was going to help to decide which kids went and which ones we were going to call on the field, right? Oh, it's the wow. hardest thing, it's the hardest thing to do. Um, but at the end of the day, every, every, every air transport carries risk, right? Like we, we both know you yeah. the, like air, air has its risks, even if it's in the, you know, the most opportune environment. And this was at night in Houston, which is hazy and hot. And so it was not a, an opportune environment. It was not optimal to, to have a now four pa at least four patients that we were going to have to evacuate. So we have two that 
the, the out of hospital, the, the, uh, the return, the ROSC rate on pediatric patients dying from trauma is next to, it's like less than 1%. And so um, unless, it's, unless it's only airway, if it's a purely airway arrest, yes, you can get them back. But in these traumas, it, I mean, like we, we have to assume hemorrhagic and everything else. So I'm, I race down there, I get there. It is, I mean, it is a, a, a disco ball of lights. It's hard to figure out where I'm going. Um, I, I, I see the first box and I head to that. Um, I happened to get into one of, the, one of the ones that was doing CPR. The medic had already done a crike on the kid. Kid's face was all was unfortunately, you know, just destroyed. Bad head injury, um, but the crike was good, uh, and they still hadn't got Ross yet. So I just really quickly, I was like, you know, I, I looked at everything. I was like, just start blood for right now. I'll be right back. Um, and they were like, we don't have blood yet. I was like, okay, well, I need to get. Uh, let me get you blood, right? Like that. You, we need that, right? If we're gonna do this, yeah. and I'm gonna call these, I want to make sure we check all of my boxes out here. So. Go to get blood, um, have to get it from one of the supervisors. Uh, I catch him, thankfully, and I was like, grab all of the blood. Anybody who has blood here, get it, right? Bring it all here, and we're going to start divvying it up, right? Because now we have to start to triage our treatments before we have air. Air is about 20 minutes out. So, and we only have two helipads for four patients. So we had to we had to do cycles, right? So we had to we had to figure out who was going to go. We had to we had to control. We had there's nobody. There, we don't have like ground air traffic control. So you know they're going to have to offset these aircraft. Somebody's going to have to control this whole thing. So I stopped by the the um, the incident commander, who was the the um, one of the the assistant chief firefighters, and I was like, hey, listen, like if you're not already tracking on this, that like I heard there's only two um, pads that they can use or two landing zones, like both of them were were parking lots. I was like, we're gonna need four helicopters at some point, so you're gonna have to offset that, and so just make sure you keep communicating that we're gonna need them, but that there's gonna be four helicopters in the area so that they all are aware, right? But you have to let them know too. Military coming back. So I get, uh, so I was like, where's the other cardiac arrest? So I, I get to the other cardiac arrest um, and uh, you're trying to get a quick report on them. Uh, no, not as significant of a head injury, had a good airway, but they just weren't getting ROSC. So I get blood real quick. I help blood get get um, blood set up for them because th at that point they were just given like fluid and and epi. And I was like, this isn't this is not what you know, like. We need we need you know we need blood if we're gonna have any chance of getting oxygen so that we can restart everything right. So get blood going, um, running it through the IO. Give you know what I think is a reasonable bolus for the kid's size, um, and then uh, and then we somehow get rolling. Um, you know, just, it was, it, it, it could have been a combination of a bunch of things, but we get Rosk and, and it was, it was amazing because it was like, you know, everybody had been, had been kind of working on this kid for almost 15 minutes. Um, and we managed to get Rosk. So, um, luckily my air crew shows up. Uh, I give like a quick report of what I knew about the patient. Um, and then, and then talk to them about what their plan was for transport, make sure everything's good. And then go back to my other cardiac arrest and tell them like, Hey, if you're on with your guys, let them know we have another cardiac arrest. I'm going to do what I can. Otherwise they're going to take the, the, uh, kid from the, the, the front seat. Cause she has two femur fractures. So, um, Holy yeah, smoke. yeah. 
Oh, I know, I know. And a kid, like she was, I think she was eight. Um, so I get oh. to my other, my other cardiac arrest. And as I walk in, I, I like, I, I really give it a better look and I, I see the kid's chest and they're, they're bagging through the crank and everything should be good. Sats are kind of like in the, in the eighties. Um, no, no major hemorrhage that I could see. And I look at the chest and one side just isn't moving, right? Like it's just one of those, those things. And I mean, they've been doing CPR, right? On a small kid. So yeah. one side's not moving. So I look at the medic and I was like, what's the problem? And she was like, we just, we can't, like, she's like, I don't, I don't know why. She's like, we've actually had PEA most of the time. And I was like, so what's the problem? I was like, you have something obstructing. I was, and, and I knew she had just done the critical care portion. She looked at me, she goes, you want me to cut the chest, don't you? And I was like, I do. Or no, she said, she said, we need to cut the chest. And I said, yes, we do. And you're going to do it. And she was like, you know, first time doing it, it's going to be on a kid, right? Like we had done it, we had done it on, um, on, on ribs, right? So we just used, we just used pig ribs that I picked up at the store to train on, right? So I taught them how, how to do it, like how I do it safely, right? Cut down to the rib, use the rib as your backbone, feel the rib, use everything to push through. Don't go, go diving in, have everything. So we walked through it really quickly. I was like, you remember everything we talked about? She was like, yeah, we just did it. I can do it. Okay, I'm right here, but you're going to do it. Um, and so I walk her, you know, I, I watch her. She did it perfect. She vents the chest, chest expands, and we get Rosk. So it was like, man, like I'm, I'm cheating today. Like I'm cheating. Like this should not, this shouldn't happen, right? Like these, you don't get these, these days, right? Like, and, and, and that's what I told him after we got, so we get that kid back. Everything's good. The air crew shows up and they're like, you're not doing CPR, seriously. Um, and so, you know, two ROSCs on, on scene. Uh, then we start triaging. Then we make sure every pain, then we, then before they take off, each one of them, because I wanted to make sure those medics were comfortable with pain management during the thing. I went around and talked to them about just, you know, what their dosing for fentanyl was going to be or what their dosing for ketamine was going to be, just to make sure that I was checked with them so that I knew that, I mean, they were still my patients in a way that they knew they had a good plan for what they were going to do in route so that these kids didn't freak out and become uncomfortable and, and everything else. Um, and so uh, so we, we get everything set. We get them all off. Um, we actually were lucky. They kind of kept the scene just blocked off for us for a while. And we debriefed right there, right in the middle of everything. Um, cause I mean, it's super intense. Um, and so we debriefed, uh, we had two supervisors and we had, uh, the, the one medic or uh, actually, no, I should say, uh, all except for one, one medic truck that took one of the uh, patients by ground because they pulled off the, the fourth helicopter for a gunshot. Um, so that's the, I mean, that's the way it goes in Houston. Um, but we, you know, with the, with the, the initial responding medic, um, and everybody who managed the cardiac arrest, we actually got like a good 15, 20 minutes to just hang out, debrief, take some of those deep breaths because, everybody had to go back to work after this. Um, and, uh, and, and so, you know, we, we get through everything, did our debrief. Um, we ended up debriefing with, it, it was great. Like within two days, we set up a debrief to include all of the local emergency responders. So fire police um, and our EMS and our dispatch center. Um, and then, and then we also looped in uh, the pediatric trauma surgeon um, and, and, uh, and the, the ER docs who were down there. So we had, we had, and, and nurses. Um, so we had this huge debrief and it was, it was great because, you know, like I, when I did my part, I was like, listen, like we didn't do anything magical. Like, thankfully these kids are resilient and they, they do come back. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, ultimately, unfortunately it wasn't, it wasn't great outcomes, both had devastating head injuries and that's the way that it goes. But, um, 
you know, we were able to give the family the opportunity to say goodbye. Um, and I think, I think that's the most, right. Um, you know, in, in these circumstances was at least that happened. So, um, I mean, so many learning points from that, right? Like, I mean, just, just as simple as like the ABCs, right? Like yeah. all I did was think simple, you know, they're, they're trying, they're given epi, they're, they're, they're getting stuck because they're like, they're not, they're not just reevaluating the ABCs and coming in with fresh eyes. It was easy for me, right? Like I could, I could just come in with fresh eyes and say, well, you, I mean, you crushed the crank. It's perfect. But what's wrong with the breathing? right? Yeah. That, that chest isn't moving and you have PEA, right? So why do you have PEA? There's some sort of obstruction. It's probably not post. It's probably preload. So why do you have a preload obstruction? I was like, look at the chest. And then once they figured it out, you know, like, it was like, okay. And, and they'll never forget. Right. Um, and then with circulation, it was like, you know, we're, we're getting all these weird rhythms. We don't know why, like, you know, we're, we're back and forth. It's not, ne it's never asystole. It's just bouncing all over the place, but we don't have a pulse. The pulse ox isn't really reading um, unless we're doing compressions. Like we don't know what's going on. And I was like, you don't have volume. You don't have the right volume. Right. Yeah. You need, you need the tank is blood empty. in yep. The tank is empty and just putting fluid in. I mean, it's just, it's right. not, it's not solving the problem, right? Like blood is the answer. So once we got blood going, got blood in the kid, we got Rusk. Um, and so, you know, amazing to, to, to have that happen, right. To have that, um, to have us be able to save the kids. I mean, devastating that, you know, they didn't make it and the, the, the whole thing is uh, it, in itself is devastating. Um, but, learning points that I think everybody took away, um, you know, and, and I mean, just the triage piece, you know, like it was amazing to watch from that, from that body cam, see her go through and make decisions, who was getting in the truck first, what they were doing, you know, that kind of stuff. I mean, and, and a, a very young medic. Um, and so, you know, again, one of those great things where it's like, you know, just, just real literally days before having taught her on some, some, a slab of ribs uh, that could have been turned into barbecue and instead was, was practice for us, you know, was what, was what kept that kid alive so that their family could see him off. Um, wow. So, yeah. So yeah, definitely a crazy call. Holy smoke. That is. <laughs> wow. Uh, so like, I, I was, I was like deeply like into that story. So um, wow. Holy cow. Um, real quick. I, I do have to help everybody else that doesn't totally know. Rost is return of uh, spontaneous circulation. circulation so that means that they get a pulse back and they're now they have that pulse and now we we're looking at whether they're breathing on their own or not so whether we need right. this as breathing so rosk is that that's for that i need to throw that in there um mm -hmm. now out of curiosity like see did you do a chest tube or just needle decompression no. we we did a uh instrument thoracostomy Oh, okay. So we did it. We, yep. So we, we vented, we, we cut the chest essentially. We, we made a hole that could take a tube, um, but it. a chest tube is not, is not technically a pre-hospital procedure um, unless right. you are, unless you're, you're qualified and, and trained to do it. Um, and, and I mean, I evidenced by me having done, I wouldn't even be able to count how many times I've done just just done instrument i say instrument thoracostomy because most of the time i'm doing these on adults and i don't know them before i start to stick my finger into the chest and <laughs> i don't trust that they don't have broken ribs that are going to give me something that they may or may not have because they're not going to admit to it when i decide to stick my finger into the chest right so if i stick if i just go blindly sticking my finger into the chest and they have broken ribs and i cut my finger and i just and and i 
yeah. I now have acquired whatever they have, that's on me, right? So it's instrument thoracostomy. And then if by my instrument, I can feel the ribs and I can feel that there's no major fractures and shards, then I will stick my finger in there just to confirm that I'm in place. But I can do that with my with with whatever curved uh, utensil I have or the other end of a scalpel, if that's the last thing that I do. Um, but, you know, like if, I, you know, as long as it's a good safety blade, I've used, I've used the blunt end of my scalpel to do that also. Because like I said, they, I don't trust that whatever they tell me, because most of the time they can't tell me anything beforehand. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, they do and don't have, or they do and didn't, you know, acquire something from in the last right. couple of months. Right, right. Yeah, better to, uh, better to be safe. You stay on the safe side. Mm -hmm. That's that's exactly point. exactly. Yeah, do it right. Yeah. Holy cow, Chris! Oh my <laughs> gosh, that is that is insane. Yeah. Um, I I do love the idea of the blood bringing in blood and fill a tank like, and I say fill a tank, replenish the body with the fluid with blood. Uh, you know, we yeah. we talk about this a little bit, but you know, blood in itself is what's carrying the oxygen to everything. When you put your uh, your saline or your ringers that that's not carrying the oxygen that's just giving you volume so right. that yep that awesome and it's, i mean it's got everything right like it's it's we we use whole blood in the u.s now we're going we're we're trying to use whole blood instead of components right so instead of using red blood cells and plasma which are usually what you see in the pre-hospital environment right now because that's the easier way to store it we're going, we, we're using whole blood. So at that time I was giving him whole blood. This, I was giving the patient whole blood. And so we're giving them, we're giving them not only the red blood cells, we're giving them the, the, the plasma, which contains all the coagulation factors, which contains a replenishment of some of the, the, um, electrolytes that they do need, right? I mean, you suck up calcium no matter what, when you get blood. Um, but there is some calcium still in, you know, residual in there. Um, and so you're giving all the thing and, and that somebody needs in order to, in, in order to correct the the entire cascade of their hypovolemic shock, right? Or of their yeah. of their massive hemorrhage. It's not just giving, yes, we're giving them oxygen carrying capacity, but we're giving them everything that they need to start to correct, right? So I, whole blood is the way, um, is the way of the future. Um, it's also the way of the past. It's what we were doing back in like, uh, World War II, uh, actually World War One, I, I believe we were doing that. Um, so whole blood transfusions have been around for a long time, um, and then and then it became easier, or it became theorized to be easier to do component storage. And so then we went to components, and then now we're going back. Now the, the whole flop is going back. So um, we had some great presentations about that in the yeah. in the conference, um, and and you know it's it's definitely some really interesting topics to look forward uh, look forward to in the future. So. Hey, they don't call it the practice of medicine for nothing. I'm just gonna. It's true. True. <laughs> yep. Dang yep. man. All right, Chris. Like you got. I'm in. I'm in for the long haul. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You you sent me another one uh, where you were on an airplane and and that that was all good and all bad at the same time. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. So for anybody who works in aviation, uh, you know, we at some point are going to be around um, uh, incidents, um, you know, and, and unfortunately, I've been involved in or uh, part of or had to respond to numerous. Um, and, and it's a tough thing to work through for anybody in that environment. But um, I thought this was a cool case just because um, I, I 
you know, like, there, I remember that picture of the, the crash up in, I think it was Northern Scotland, um, where they had the medic like still with the patient, even though the, 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 the helicopter had crashed. Right. So yeah. like, I mean, like that, 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 that's, that's, that's us. Right. Um, and so, so my story is, uh, I, I was flying. So this was my, uh, my Afghanistan, one of my Afghanistan deployments. Um, I, I was going to pick up a guy, uh, who had been shot across the pelvis. Um, and mm. so had bad vascular injuries, had been getting a ton of blood. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, so go and, um, pick him up, actually went into the, uh, into the OR, helped with fasciotomies. And I mean, it was crazy. The, the whole thing started out crazy. Um, it was a, it was, a, it was a like dusty, sandy, windy day. Um, and, and you might know what those feel like. Um, cause I definitely do around here. Uh, and so, um, so, you know, we get the patient out. I'm, I'm like, I am struggling with this guy cause he had been massively transfused. They were running at that point. We weren't using whole blood. So they were running out of components. They were given a lot of packed cells without a lot of plasma. So he was kind of leaky. Um, you know, we were doing everything we could, but I mean, the guy just, he was coagulopathic and he's just leaking everywhere. So we get him on board. I was like, I made the call at one point. I was just like, me and the trauma surgeon looked at each other and I was like, we've got to go cause you've got nothing else. So let's just let, these are the things that I think I need. Um, and let's get them bundled up and get them out to the aircraft as quick as we can. So we do that. We're in route. I'm doing everything I can. I give them all the blood that we had left. Um, you know, we're, we're kind of, I didn't want to put them on pressers because they had done some vascular repair and that can really screw that up. So I'm, I'm just, I'm just trying to like keep the guy in a comfortable, uh, like where I'm comfortable, even though it's not good. I just, I have to be comfortable enough that when we, when we're flying and when we're landing, that the physiology doesn't change so much that, that I lose them. Right. So, right. so I, I, I had luckily been had done enough tra- I did I did almost 300 transports so I was I, I was pretty close to knowing like what I needed and what I didn't um and so we are uh, I, I would always be up on comms with the air crew um because I wanted to make sure that they were knowing what was going on with my patients um so that they could help to communicate reports if I wasn't able to get them out through our channels um and it also you know sometimes they're willing to accept certain risks if I if I push them to right so so my, all of my decisions everything I ask them to do is in ways asking them to accept risk, right? I need you to fly faster or I need you to fly lower because my, my patient has a head injury or I need you to do like some of those things that we had to ask them to do were risk. And they had to, they had to decide ultimately they're the, they're the aircraft commander, not me. And so I could tell them what my patient needed and what I thought they could do to help. And if they could do it, they would do it if they, if they're willing to accept the risk. Right. So I was, I would always be on comm so I could communicate that to them. So I'm up on comms and I would also know when we were getting close and when we were, you know, like close to landing and how, how far out we were from touching down. And these are military aircraft. So it's not like you're smooth, like just glide in and land real nicely. And, you know, you have to, you have to do things. And so it's, it, it never, it's never fun right at the end and everybody has to kind of hold on. Uh, and so uh, we were, we were ready for that uh, in a, in a way, but we hadn't like all positioned ourselves appropriately. Um, I hear the, the 500. So we get calls for, for distance, right? Cause uh, the, the air, the um, back enders will let the pilots know what their, what their altitude is. So that way there's a cross check with their instruments. Um, and so, and what they're seeing so that there's, there's, you know, like everybody's kind of on the same page. So if anything malfunctions, you've got, you know, redundancy of, of 
people confirming where you're at, right? So I hear 500, I hear 250, I hear 100, I hear 50, and then I just feel bam, like just, and, and 150 seems a little bit close, 50 and the slam, I don't know exactly how long it was, but it was not long. Um, and so uh, the theory is that a sheer wind took out our lift and we just dropped. Um, luckily we dropped Ooh. onto the flight line, um, but in a C-130, that's, that's uh, you know, a, a lot of weight dropping. So, um, so we hit, my nurse had been crouching. Um, and so she was crouching, we hit, she goes down, um, her, you know, her butt and tailbone slam into a hard, you know, because we pit, we, we did patient care on the floor also. So um, I luckily was kneeling. Um, and so I was able to take kind of, I was more springy. She slammed into the floor. Um, and so, uh, so she's like laying on her back and can't move. Um, the, uh, the other medics or the other, the other medic um, was he was luckily just about to get into a seat. So he got thrown into the seat. He was okay, um, but not quite ready like uh, with it. And then um, I look at my patient and I see like where I had, um, you know, constantly been watch watching his, uh, his, his vascular repairs across his pelvis was just oozing, saturated. Um, and so, uh, you know, shook him up enough to probably some of the, some of the um, uh, shunts that they had put in probably tore. So I throw both my knees into his pelvis um, and just and just kneel on the patient. I get up on comms and check that everybody else on the aircraft is okay. Um, the, luckily, nobody was injured, um, but I hear them saying like the, the ground crew is on their way out. They're gonna check the plane, but they have to stop. So we're in the middle of this huge flight line in the middle of Afghanistan. And I was like, if the ground crew is coming out, I need an ambulance now. Like get me, get me transport to the, to the hospital now. So uh, ground crew gets out, find out that the actual tail of the aircraft had cracked right underneath us. So the tail wow. was cracked, so we couldn't move anymore. Um, and they, they couldn't put the back down. So we had to go out the side door, which was a pain. Oh, so the side door of a um, C-130 is ridiculous. Yep. It's, it's like, yeah, it's, yeah. it's not that wide. For anybody that doesn't know a C-130 door, it's, it was, it's like three, maybe four feet wide. It's all wide. Right. So a patient on a NATO litter with, with yeah. vents and everything else going, man, yeah. like, and, and trying to keep them from bleeding everywhere. Like, yeah, oh, it was a mess. So, Sorry, I, um, I didn't mean to I cut you off there. Managed, yeah, no, no, I, no, I, yeah. I, I, mean, I know this even very yeah, well. <laughs> that's what you have to do, right? Like, I mean, yeah. unfortunately, that's the, like, it teaches us to, you know, you have to make decisions and you have to do things not in the ideal way. Um, right. And I think like, that's, that's, that's what, like, that's what keeps me coming back to, to rescue, right? Like search and rescue is like, you, you can, you can think that you're doing a hundred percent, right. You are, you're never there. Like you're, yeah. you definitely don't know rescue. If you think you're a hundred percent right at any point, right. Like you're just, you're just willing to accept, you're willing to accept doing things in ways that you know are, are close enough. Right. Like, like, like I was, like we said before, like close to right head towards right. And you're good. Right. Yeah. So same kind of thing, like going out this door was not the right thing because with the, the angle, everything, like it was going to be really difficult, unsafe for us moving him. Like there was just so many problems, but I was like, we got to move. So we're, I'm, I'm making the call. We're going out the side because they can't do anything else right now. Like we're going out the side. So we actually got him to, uh, we got him into the hospital. Um, I think as far as I know, he survived through, through the hospital that we were delivering to. I don't know beyond that. Um, but then of course, like we crashed. So as a flight doc, because I was also a flight doc, um, I got to do the, I got to help with the investigation um, because the, the flight doc who was there had never done one. 
um, and he had never been involved in it. So I kind of had to walk him through everything that needed to happen. So me and my crew are being, you know, like going through all the like after, after crash investigation stuff. Um, and I'm also having to do that. And then as soon as I was done, they were like, Hey doc, you ready? Cause we got more to go. And it's like, I just, oh I just, got home, man. Like, can I have, can I have a day off? No. Can I get one day? Just, just one. That's all I'm asking. <laughs> can you throw me a bone, please, for a minute? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so thank you, U.S. military. Hello. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. And that's. I mean, you know, but but the you know the I think like the the reason that this is one of those cool stories is, um, fortunately, like we weren't bad off but we weren't well off from, you know, from this, I don't, you don't walk away from a crash feeling like, Oh, that went great. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you have to keep your head about you. And, and the most important person, unfortunately in that circumstance is the patient, right? Like that's what, that's what we're there to do. Um, and people will forget about that. And right. so, yeah, ground crews on the way. I don't care about ground crew, man, get me an ambulance. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, and, and luckily, I mean, my air crew were awesome. They knew what our mission was and they were doing it already. But in, in some circumstances, you might not have pilots who routinely do medi medical evacuation. Um, and so uh, in that case, you really, I mean, you have to be, you have to be that advocate. You have to push to get your patient out there. So, um, yeah, so it was, uh, it was some, something that um, definitely still sticks with me, um, you know, because luckily this time we all, we all walked away from it and, uh, and we got the patient um, back or we, we safely delivered our patient. So we accomplished our mission um that aircraft last i heard is still there um may or may not be in, I, don't, yeah, I, I don't know what condition it's I, in now but yeah, it didn't leave it didn't leave it couldn't leave um and so i don't know what condition it's now i'm sure it's torn up or, or blown up so yeah. um you know that's a, that's a sad you know it is a, that's the sad reality there wow so, yeah you know, I've been in some hard landings at a C-130, but I, I can I can honestly say I've never been in one that cracked broke the entire one? tail. Yeah, that yeah. that's a little bit much. <laughs> yep. Yep. So, yep. wow, dang! Hi, and the rest of the crew, everybody, other than any. Yeah, thankfully, you know the the nurse she she just needed a couple of days, um, bruised tailbone, but you know, thankfully, uh, she was fine. No no major injuries. Um, and, and then, uh, all the rest of the air crew, they, they were, they, you know, they were back on as soon as they had a new aircraft. So, wow. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that's good yep. to hear. Dang, yeah. man. <laughs> Chris, holy shit. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. Fun right. stories, man. Well, I'll tell you what, let's, let's change gears a little bit. I, I want to get into some training because you and I talked a little bit and you as a medical director have been put in charge of a lot and some of the trainings that you've run through you mentioned uh doing some down in like arizona and whatnot so and, and like we talked about a little bit um like an entire bus going into the grand canyon like you went extreme so yeah. bring us into a little of that like you <laughs> as a medical are, are you setting all these trainings up is that is it your idea or are you collaborating with a bunch of people um so the way that i mean i think i think Search and rescue is a is a perfect example of the way that you drive you drive um, all of the the air crew um, uh, continuity and skill and everything 
by by just adding you know certain complicators to the patient scenario right like yeah. search and rescue doesn't go out to 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 just like i mean they do they do fly around flight grid and you know do the, the actual search portion but the real the real tasking is for the rescue right and so I learned pretty, I learned pretty quickly, or I just understood that by, by me being involved in the beginning, right? Like what, what were the pilots trying to achieve out of their, their training and what were their training objectives or their learning objectives? You know, like if they, if they want to do a high angle hoist mission uh, or winch, I mean, some people call it winch I, yeah. I, I, with hoist. If they want to do a high angle hoist mission or they want to fly, you know, some some crazy route or if they want to have their patient laying in this, you know, like really difficult to get to area um, or or they want the, the patient status to change during the flight so that the pilots have to make a decision. Right. Like I can I can drive all that through a patient scenario while also accomplishing learning objectives for my medics. Right. So um so I got uh, training to me is, I mean, you know, it, it's, it's the key, the good quality training is the key to good quality performance. So I, I got, I got into doing that, um, you know, on a regular basis. And, and we talked about like some of my, my theories and how I would, uh, how I would stress people. Right. And I, I mean, if I can do it to pilots, I'd do it to them too. Um, and oh, so we, we already we, do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. There's, <laughs> um, so, so, uh, I got involved. We had this, we, we hosted this exercise every 18 months in Arizona, um, Angel Thunder. It's now, it's now, I believe, moved to uh, Las Vegas area um, under, a, under a slightly different name. Um, but at the time it was a, uh, a it was constantly growing. Um, I think I told you over the course of, um, I, did, I, I did it twice as the medical director and the lead planner, lead medical planner. Um, I think over the course of it, we had almost 30 countries participate. We had 2,000 like rescue. We had 2,000 participants from air crew to ground coordination to full hospitals set up all across the southern, like southwest U.S. Um, we did we did all kinds of all kinds of scenarios. Um, you know, individually we did single, you know, single person, and we did uh, earthquake scenarios with you know, over, over 400 patients in the, in the, um, the Phoenix Scottsdale area, um, in, in Northern Arizona, we did 400 patients that were isolated because of, uh, earthquake and, you know, overloaded hospitals with that. Um, we did, we did water rescue off of San Diego during great white breeding season. That was not my <laughs> idea, but we pushed for it. Uh, but then one of our technical one of our technical guys wanted to do a, uh, a, a hoist mission in the Grand Canyon. So we got approval to do it. So they wanted a scenario that would challenge people. And obviously like one person stuck on the side of the Grand Canyon, yeah. that's boring, right? So Lame. we did the school bus. <laughs> Um, Which we didn't is put crazy the school bus and over. Sick, like. Yeah, it was it was crazy. We we brought the school bus in. We we uh, we had it kind of like made up to look like it had tipped, um, and uh, and then um, we simulated I think six or seven patients over the edge with another twenty up on the edge, like on the on the edge of the Grand Canyon, um, and so they had six rescues to coordinate along the edge, um, and then uh, and then and then we had multiple up on so that that way really it was to get like there were a lot of people who needed to do the the actual hoist technical piece and so that was the way that we did it right like they they're like i have six guys who i needed to do high angle technical rescue um and so let's you know like i like we need six of them great 
I can do that. Um, a school bus. So, um, so it. but you can't make it easy, right? Like you don't just get to show up and fly around in the Grand Canyon. That's that's just that's just nice. So, um, so we we made them deal with another twenty patients while they were while they were also like doing these rescues, right? So the team had to make decisions. The pilots had to deal figure out the evacuation plans, um, and ultimately, how am I going to tell them they did or didn't do it right? Like, I, I don't evaluate the pilots. I don't evaluate the hoist. I don't evaluate the technical, uh, like any of the technical aspects of the rescue. My job is the medical piece. And I can't just hang out on the side of the Grand Canyon and be like, oh yeah, you definitely missed your assessment of the pulses or something like that. No, right? So, so the way that I did this and, and for 400 patients, how am I going to know that for 400 patients, they at least did something medically appropriate for each one of those patients, right? Cause I had the patients like drive them to do something. So each patient had, depending on the severity of their injuries, they had either, they had one to three key interventions, right? And so there were three things in serious patients that needed to happen in order for me to say that they did an adequate job right and they weren't like anything complex but like if it's a, if it's an extremity hemorrhage they had to have a tourniquet um if the if it was uh somebody with a non-extremity but but in hypovolemic shock with some abdominal or chest injury they had to get txa if it was a head injury they had to make sure they documented a good blood pressure and a good pulse ox right like certain like simple things simple things but the the things that would make the difference in in life or death really so yeah. each one of those patients on the side of the, the Grand Canyon, they had like one intervention that needed to happen medically. And, and I, you know, I told everybody before going out, I was like, listen, if your patient is a patient, then you have to treat them like a patient. If they're, if they say I'm perfectly fine, I don't have any injuries. And you want to just say like, Hey, I'm just going to do a quick exam and you check them out and they're good. Then they're good. But if you, if they're a patient and they say something hurts, or if something's bleeding and they're moulaged, or if they are, if they aren't, if they're not participating and they can't tell you anything and they're like acting altered, you got to figure it out, right? So you don't get to just play, right? This is not just a, a game. So, yeah. So that's what we did. We, we set up. We set up that that scenario. Um, uh, it was awesome. I didn't get to go because I was running nine million things and i was i was in charge of not only the scenario development and the the medical like the actual evaluation of the performance i was also in charge of all the backside medical direction so if anybody got hurt or injured i was i was up on that i was the one who was like coordinating all of our medical assets across whatever three four states we were in um and so i i really unfortunately was stuck in an op center i didn't get to go out and play in the field very often um but uh but, you know, it's one of those like just crazy times where you really see how you can how you can make things real. Right. Like you're getting excited because this is real. It's yeah. not like me saying like, oh, hey, uh, you have a person laying over there and it looks like their leg is broken. Go. Right. Like yeah. that's boring. Right. Like, no, no. Like right. You have a person on the side of the Grand Canyon and their wrist is broken and they've got a big bump on their head and they're trying to like grab you. Right. Like they're trying to pull you down what are you going to do, right? Like, how do you safe that scenario, right? So, go. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bet the medic's going to win that one. I'm just going to throw that out there. I would win. <laughs> oh, yeah. Every time. Yeah, I mean, well, I don't know about every time, but I'm going to try like hell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. Man, that is awesome. I love it. All right. So let me, let me go a little, little bit deeper with this, you know, you being the medical director side of things, because, you know, I, 
on cases and calls that I've been on, and it can be something simple. Like, I don't want to call you. Like you, protocols are written. You approve mm-hmm. them as the medical director and I'm going to follow them. I guess the question now is what happens when I need a little bit more or because I fly, I'm out of radio contact with my medical director and I can't call for medical direction. Where is it? Where is it? How do I want to ask this? The best way mm-hmm. for me to the, the best way for me to move forward, I guess, is is kind right, of where I'm right. going with this. You know, like I don't want to go against protocol, but it seems side like let's say I max out my fentanyl or I max out my ketamine, depending on the drug I'm using at the time. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I just need a little bit more. I, we've got another two hours to go. I'm out of radio range. Is this something you you would be okay? I I push a little more. I do a little of this. And I, and I write it up when I get back and call doc doc. So this is what I did. I'm sorry. But like, what's your take on that? Again, as the medical director, you're trusting your guys in the field. Okay. I've talked too much. (laughs) There it is. That's cool. So you got to the last word, right? Trust. Um, Trusting your, your medics as a medical director is important. Right. And that, that comes from that, that high quality training environment. Um, and working closely with them, right? Like understanding the environment that they work in is important. Um, I was not a paramedic before I became a doctor, right? And and in some ways, some people look at that as like, you won't be a good med director because you don't know what it was like, right? I, I, was, I was fortunate, I think, to train in New York where I, I was by myself all the time with patients. And then, and then to be put in the position of being a search and rescue doc where I was flying missions by myself. So I, I, I learned it, not everybody gets that opportunity, right? So you have to trust, your doc has to trust you and you have to trust your doc that in that, in that weird environment, they're gonna be able to understand what's going on, right? Um, and so that's what makes a good medical director. And I think, I mean, like, you know, not to say that you have to be EMS trained, but I think that's one of the things that we, we really, really focus on when training our, you know, docs now that it's a, now that it's a formal board certified specialty in the US, it's important, right? I mean, and then the UK has it too. And then there's some certifications in Australia. So there, there are some play, there's some ways to get that training. And, and what it really comes down to is trusting your medics to the point that you know their protocols and you know that they know their protocols and they know how to work, but you also know them personally so that if they make a decision, what you were, you were talking about, right? Like I, I you know, I'm, I'm out of radio contact. The time is too long. I need this to do this. It's what my patient needs. I feel it's safe at this point. I know the risks and I'm going to monitor for them, right? So your documentation just needs to reflect that, right? You did break protocol, but you broke protocol with the understanding that you were still working within a reasonable, like close to right of your protocol, right? Like you, you're close allowed to, to right. Fed- on the way to right you're allowed to do these things yeah you're allowed to do these things right like if you think that everything pre-hospital needs like like i've said it right like nothing pre-hospital is ever going to be 100 right so you can't 100 be held to your protocols if you are if you're doing what's best for your patient you're doing it safely and you document your reason reasoning for it and then and then the last thing was like right like when you get when you get back and you say hey doc like this is what happened, right? So that that was the best thing for me in in Afghanistan and Iraq when I was there was like my guys would get back from a mission, 
and they didn't do anything wrong, but they'd be like, Hey, like, this is what we did. This is what we did. This is what we did. And then I would, I would help them to reason through it. I would help them to find, you know, I, the way that I've, I would put it is like, I'm going to give you the doctor words for what you did, right? Like, I'm going to explain to you the decisions that you were making, because I can understand it now, because I'm thinking clearly, and you're telling it to me, but I can help you to make make logical sense of all this. So that one, the next time you're in this position, you know why you were making these decisions, right? And it helps you to make them either faster or more comfortably the next time. It helps with your documentation. And if anybody comes after you, this is the hardest part, right? Like you show up to a hospital and let's say they they actually know what's going on, right? Especially, especially with ketamine, depending on where you're working, right? And you have given your patient a good amount of ketamine and they're slugged down. Um, and, and, and they ask you like, what did you, why did you do this to your patient? Like, what's wrong with you, right? Like this shouldn't be, this shouldn't, they shouldn't be like this. They don't understand. That's the, that's the first problem. The second problem is you need to have, like, you now need to not defend yourself because don't ever feel like you have to defend what you do pre-hospital. You're doing what's best for the patient, right? So that's your answer. You're doing what's best for the patient. So if you call me, cause you can, and you say, Hey doc, this is what's going on. My patient's still in pain. I want to give them this, or uh, I've given him, I've given him this much, um, whatever antibiotic, and he's starting to turn red. And I think I need to give these things. But if I give him all these medications, like if I give him Benadryl and 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 I have a steroid, if I give him all these things, is that going to mess up whatever else is going on? Right? Like if if you're not sure and you have that comfort level with your with your doc, you just say like, this is what I think is best right now. Right? Like this this is yeah. me on like looking at the patient. This is what I think is best. What do you think? Right? And that's and and I do that in the hospital all the time. I include everybody in decision making when it comes, even in even in the most critical situations. Like when I'm when I'm running a code or when I'm running a trauma and they're sick, I still will find times I'll take those tactical pauses and I will pull everybody in and I'll say, "This is what I think we need to do." Does anybody else have anything else? Like, does anybody else see something that I'm missing? Right? Or does this sound good? Right? So bring people in, make those decisions. If you have another medic, talk it through. Here's the risk. Here's the here's the benefit. Um, I think we can safely like get across this bridge, and 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 then we'll talk to Doc after after we've turned over the patient, after we've calmed down, and we'll talk to Doc as soon as we get as soon as we get calms up. Right? So you know, like those are the don't. Don't, don't surprise your doc with that. Don't like, you know, blindside them with, you know, I did, I did some, I did some crazy procedure or right, like, right. if you're not, if you're not credentialed to put a chest tube in and you stick an ET tube in somebody's chest, please <laughs> tell your doc right away. Like yeah, yeah. I did this because I thought I should. Right. And I, and, yeah, and yeah. this is my reasoning. Like, this was what I had to do. And it was two hours. And if I kept sticking my finger in their chest, I just felt like it was going to cause an infection. So I thought that this would be the best answer. So this is how I did it. And this is what I did. And I've experienced it in some other environments. And so this is, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I've had that happen to me, right? Like that has happened to me as a medical director. <laughs> I've had a medic come in and be like, I stuck a tube into somebody's chest. And I'm like, all right, slow down. Let's talk all the way through this. Like, that's the end. You yeah, got let's to the let's end start from the beginning. You, yep. you did. Let's you start did from what? the beginning, right? Yep. Yeah, like fasciotomies, right? Like fasciotomies for prolonged field care for medics. You don't want to have to do that ever, right? And, and remembering where to do them is really hard. And if you don't have your references and you, you don't know where to do them, right? Like doing a fasciotomy is a big deal, but we train our medics to do that. And so when I had a medic do a fasciotomy, like he came in initially, he came in like, you know, the dog that had chewed up the sofa, right? Like tail between his legs. And this is a big dude. He's a big boy. He's, he was a, he was a, um, 
uh, Marshall from the from like Montana, big boy, um, okay. and smart too. Like went to went to a, um, a, a like a super good university, um, Brown University in the U.S. So like super smart, big dude, just tail between the legs, and was like, "Duck, I don't know, man. Like, I might have screwed up." All right, sit down. Let's start. Right? Like, where did it start? Like, tell me the story. Tell me. And like, I knew I knew the call, but I didn't know what happened. Right? And then, okay, walk me through how your fasciotomies looked. Like, what did you? What did you? What were you cutting for? Okay, so that makes sense, right? So document all that stuff, right? Write it down this way. I made these decisions because of this, not because somebody on the ground said, "Oh, you might need to do fasciotomies." Right? Like, he was like, "That's what put it in my mind," and I was like, "No, that's not what put it in your mind. You were managing a patient in route who was in it, like he lost." lost sense and pulses in his foot and you needed to do something and his leg felt tight and you knew that he had a fracture and you were transporting for more than a half hour and he had already been down for over two or three hours and you knew where to do the cut so you made a cut so you did it right and you thought it was what was best for your patient and ultimately like it went okay nothing happened like nothing it didn't fall off his leg didn't fall off after you did it so you know at the end of the day like you did the best that you could because you thought it was what was best for your patient. So, yeah. um, so that's my, that's my take on it. Right. Like, I mean, just have that relationship with your medical director. Um, I, I think it's, I think it's, you know, like vitally important to have that, um, that trust, that mutual trust. Um, and if you don't, man, like that's, it's rough. Yeah. It's really rough. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, it, it, I, I don't know how to tell you to work in that environment. Cause that's not me. Um, I just, I, I don't, I don't like to put, I don't like to put medics in that position, right? Like yeah. you have to do it the way that I told you. And that's your only option. I'm right. wrong, right? I'm wrong if I say that. So. Well, I, yeah. and I mean, I'm going to preface like with the final edit, I, nobody start breaking protocol. Okay. This is no. protocol. I mean, don't be breaking protocol because of this conversation. That's not what we're saying. All right. Nope. Follow your protocols. There's exactly. the, there's that little bit of gray the rare, area the rare the yeah. rare exception where you go just you don't go yeah. crazy yeah right yeah you didn't, you didn't turn into a trauma surgeon and start doing crazy <laughs> things right like you you are yeah. working as close as you can to your protocol but you feel that you need to just slightly adjust adjust not break uh, adjust yes. add or continue like extend your protocol yeah. in yeah. a way that is safe for your patient right and when you say it that way it's it you can't you can't like break that down in a way that makes it that you were doing something you you went off off the rails right like you did not you were you were staying within your protocol and you knew your protocol so well that you knew you were at the end of it yeah. and you knew that it needed a little bit more and that little bit more was safe and you knew how to monitor and you at the end of the day knew what you know like when to make the decision when to make that that time that time sensitive critical decision to do that and then at the end of it you acknowledged that you did it right that's the last thing if you do that and you don't acknowledge it then you're asking for trouble, right? Then you're asking for trouble. That was the best part about that medic coming to me, right? Like he could have not told me because we took that patient to a hospital I would have never heard from. So he could have dropped that guy off and never said a thing. And I would have not probably heard about it, but he came to me because he knew that he did something and he wanted to understand why he did it so that he could document it so that it was something that he had, he had owned up to, right? Like he had done something that was within protocol to an extent, but I mean, 
time sensitive. You know, he could have, he could have waited maybe, but he felt like it needed to be done. And so I backed him up. Right. And so when the question came, I backed him up and there was no problems. Right. But that's what, that's what needs to happen is you have to, you have to acknowledge it. You have to acknowledge it. You have to document. Otherwise now you're, now you're, now you're hiding. Right. And when you're hiding it, then that's like saying I did something wrong. Right. So own it, own it, admit it, own it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Man, this this yep. is awesome. Ah, oh, Chris, this has been amazing. I, I appreciate the, all this. This is good stuff. And you know, like I, I like to think that I had like while I was in. So it was interesting. Like we're talking about, uh, you know, the doctor and medic or EMT basic for me at the Coast Guard. Uh, my relationship with my my docs. You know, like there was a doc at one unit that I was close with, but the guys that are on call, one of them was in Hawaii. I didn't know him from Adam. So that's, mm-hmm. that's an interesting dynamic. Oh, it's just so happens yeah. that doc is on call that day. He's taking medical calls for the entire West coast, you know? Um, but at the same time, I, you know, I worked down in the Gulf of Mexico and, you know, the docs came and flew with us from time to time. We would bounce into the hospital just to hang out with them. And hey, what do you got today, doc? Oh yeah. Come check this out. Yeah. And we'd be in, you know, like the student, you know, hanging out with the docs. So yeah, go mm-hmm. get with your medical directors, hang out with them, get that personal relationship there so that, you know, I'm all about it. So absolutely. Yeah. Ah, Chris, this has been unreal. Thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing this side of like the doctor world, the medical director side. Again, you're the first guy on that I've had on that, uh, that can give us this aspect. So I appreciate it. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate it. Um, I, you know, we, last thing I want to say is, but it's, you, you heard stories that, that I give where I, I get to take, I get to not take credit. I get to feel what you get to feel. Um, and so, so build that relationship with your medical director and build that relationship with your mission, right? I mean, like if, if you are a search and rescue, if you're HEMS, if you're EMS, if you're whatever you are, if you aspire to do those things, right? Like connect yourself to being the person who, who goes to help somebody on the worst day of their life. Don't ever hold that against them in the way that they respond to you. Don't ever hold that against you for the, the way that you come out of that mission. Because you, if you show up every time thinking, I'm going to do what I think is close to right for this person. I'm going to be the best person I can be. I'm going to be the best medic I can be. Man, like, I mean, it's, it's, on, it's honestly one of the most honorable and amazing things that we get to do. And so thank all of you for doing it. Thank you, Jason, for bringing me onto this. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely, it's, it's been awesome. Um, I, I, as you can tell, I love talking about this stuff because um, it, it brings me back, right? Like it just brings me back. I told you I'm, I'm in for life, but like yeah. every time I get excited, I'm like, all right, when's my next one, right? So it's great. And, and you know, they're terrible things that happen and we get to be the ones to turn them around. And so, so thank everybody for doing that. Thank you all. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's an honor to, to be, you know, thought to be included on this because, uh, you know, I get to support what you do. So. Man, I love it. I'm cutting it with that. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> we are out of here. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Real Rescue Podcast. Please take a minute to like, subscribe, and hit that share button. I'm pulling chocks and taking off. But before I go, if anyone out there has a rescue story they would be willing to share, I would be humbled and honored to have you on as a guest. Or if you have any questions about rescue or anything else we talk about here, send an email to 
Jason at therealrescue.com. That's Jason at T-H-E-R-E-A-L-R-E-S-Q.com. You can also check us out on our web pages, therealrescue.com, our Facebook page, and our Instagram page, at The Real Rescue. Again, a special thank you to all of you standing on the watch today. Always remember, when that SAR alarm goes off, those in distress are praying for a miracle. They are going to get you. Until next time, fly safe and swim hard. <laughs>